Hey, everybody. Welcome. Tux Weekend starts now. Good morning. Welcome. How are you doing today? Doing good, Tucker. Thanks, man. Awesome. I've got uh, Jason Rule on today. And, um, man, I, I I usually don't get nervous for these podcasts. Um, but for some reason, when I was laying in bed last night, my mind was just spinning and... Um, I was like, where, where do I even start with this guy? Um, Jason and I kind of go way back. And so I was like, man, I don't even know where to start off or, or what would be a good, good place to go. But let's, let's just start out. I usually ask folks, um, you know, what's your elevator pitch? If you, if somebody jumps on the elevator and they're not at a, a fitness competition or something like that, and they run into you and they say, Hey, Jason, um, what do you do anyway? How do you answer that question? Ooh, that's a, so what I do is uh, on in a couple planes. One, I'm, I call myself the organizer of chaos within the company. Things are constantly in flux. Things are constantly changing. So I try to help organize that chaos, whether it's through systems. So that's kind of how I, I describe what I do within my company, within the community of retail, within the community of supplements, in CrossFit, I, I'm a retail consultant and a marketing consultant wrapped around a supplement company. Awesome. So um, part of the guests that I pick, I, I want it to have kind of this cohesive flow through the timeline if you are to, to kind of re or uh, listen to the episodes in order. And the last guests that I had were the new owners of Southwind CrossFit. And so I actually struggled for a week or two and say, who's, who am I going to have on next? But I think you're the, you're the perfect fit because you are one of the, uh, the old school CrossFitters at Southwind CrossFit. So, um, let's go back and, and ask you, um, why, why did you start CrossFit? Ooh, that's a good one. Um, I started CrossFit because uh, I had I'd recently sold my last GNC, and um, I was going through a process of trying to figure out what it is I wanted to do, what career path I wanted to take. I had been a franchisee for um, almost 10 years, and I enjoyed the supplement market, but I also enjoyed marketing. I enjoyed sales, um, so I dabbled a little bit in digital marketing. Um, I was a consultant to a large radio group there in Kansas, helped them build out their digital platforms, which was interesting because I was going from taking new technology to, into a very old platform, which is radio. Uh, print, print obviously was very delayed, um, so thus they're pretty much all dying or have already. So as I was going through that, um, I also realized that I had um, a small hernia. Um, so I was being very sedentary. I went from working at the stores, being fit, to sitting on my butt a lot during the day, um, doing market research, doing work, learning how to build websites um, within the platform on how it could be used for advertising, and I got out of shape. Um, and then as I got more out of shape, my hernia became uh, more severe. You know, my abdominal wall wasn't able to hold in. Uh, my gut, for lack of a better term, of, uh, you know, I, I had very strong core. And as I set more, became more lethargic, I just 
started to have more issues with my hernia. So I went and had surgery, and that was a that was a brutal surgery for me. Um, I've been blessed with health, and I don't have really too many issues, and haven't had any surgery. So taking my my level of mobility away, you know, for anybody that's had, uh, I think it's pronounced inguinal, inguinal um, hernia it's down low in the groin area. Um, it's it's a tough recovery, and I think I spent about five, six days in bed, and then, you know, Val helped, Val's my wife, um, helped me out of the chair, helped me out of bed. I mean, it was it was brutal. And I think in about two weeks, I was finally able to walk to the end of the mailbox or end of, a, end of our block there in Hayes to get the mail. Um, and coming from, you know, the GNC store, you know, I had traditional experience in, in, in weights, throwing iron, you know, doing curls, doing very little legs doing very little core because um, I, I really didn't need to being a college athlete I, I it just wasn't really a focus but after I had that surgery and I started realizing like oh shit so much my so much of everything I do is my core and I'm not going to have the discipline to go into a traditional gym um, to do it um, and then as as I was Making that decision, I met Josh Beaker at Dillon's. I remember checking out, and he goes, dude, you ought to come check it out. Um, and I was very intimidated like everybody else. They, Especially former athletes, right? We have ego that kicks in, and we think, uh, you know, I need to go and show these guys what I can do. I, I've been fit. Um, so I tried to do certain things, actually, where at the Hayes Rec there, um, before they really expanded, tried to do get in shape so I could be in decent enough shape to do CrossFit, which as anybody that's ever done CrossFit, it doesn't matter how good a shape you're in, it's still going to kick your ass. So just eat a big slice of humble pie and go join the community. That's awesome. Do you remember what year your surgery was in? Man, I'll, I would be willing to bet it would have been I'm terrible at, I'm terrible at dates. Uh, I would say it's probably been nine years okay close to eight to nine years yeah so we're looking so whatever 20, year that would be. 2011 2012 somewhere in there that'd be about right that'd be about right um and then it just so happened you know i i joined um started enjoying working out with people and the camaraderie i'm normally a pretty quiet guy and i was there as well but i enjoyed getting to know people and um just being around people um to me, it was a blessing, and uh, it wasn't too long after I started. Actually, Val was Val, uh, Val joined, and then, of course, we ended up we were expecting, and then that about three months after we found out we were expecting, and I don't even think you know this. Uh, I haven't shared it um, too many times, but um, when we were about three months pregnant with Lake, and I found out. Uh, I started having some numbness. I thought it was a side effect from the surgery. Went in, got checked out, had some numbness down my leg, and they said, "Well, let's let's get a scan to see what's going on." Um, I still remember Doctor Hess there in town eloquently put it. Well, you have what's called a schwannoma in your spine. It's about the size of a raisin. Um, so of course, you know all the paranoia and everything else kicks in and all the fears. So long story short, you know, I'm, I'm fine, but it is, it is a mass that's inside the sheath of my spine that, uh, grows. Uh, thankfully I I get a scan every six months 
thankfully it hasn't. Um, at some point it, it probably will, whether it's a millimeter, half a millimeter, and then it will start to put pressure on, you know, my, my spine. And it's the reason I haven't had it removed or didn't have it removed then is it's, um, there's, your spine has what's called the horsetail where everything's kind of in some one solid cable, right? So, but then when it hits the horsetail, it starts spinning out to all of your lower extremities and it literally looks like a horsetail. So this mass is right at the top of that. So the issues with entanglement um, are, when it's removed, are a lot more risky than just leaving it and waiting until it causes an issue and then having it removed at that time. So that compounded even more my desire to um, establish my core, knowing that someday, you know, that may become an issue. And I was expecting, you know, Lauren was five, four or five or hell, but now she was three. Um, and like knowing like I have an obligation to my family, like if there's one thing I can do to be able to stay mobile, to keep my core strong, like I, I have to do it now. I don't have a choice. And she was expecting with Lakin, right? Right. Yeah. We were, I think she was three or four months along when we found that out. I, I had this question saved for later, but I think now's the perfect time. Um, now, t- tell the story of how you and Val met. And um, now, is Val f- originally from Hayes? She's from Hill City. Hill City, okay. And uh, tell us how, how the two of you met, because um, I know she's going to be coming up a lot uh, throughout all of this because you guys are an amazing team, and I know Jill and I learned a lot uh, just being around you guys. Well, thank you. Um, uh, Val and I met in college. I was a sophomore. She's a year younger than I am. Um, she decided to go to Fort Hayes, and I had her in, in a class, and I called her geography girl. Um, just uh, my level of maturity obviously wasn't very high. <laughs> I also I wasn't, I wasn't, I wasn't great at talking to girls apparently. <laughs> <laughs> I also didn't know you were a college athlete. So, um, yep. you were at Fort Hayes. Yeah. Yeah. I was a sprinter. I ran the, the one, the two and the four by one. Awesome. Uh, and I did the, I did the indoor one time and I actually, it peeled the bottom of my skin off, and I think I came like two hundredths of a second from breaking the school record. Awesome. Um, yeah, and I wasn't that fast. I just got really pissed off because the guy next to me was running his mouth, and uh, I literally was yelling at the guy after about 200 meters. <laughs> I, I can't imagine you yelling at anybody. No, I it, I was so quiet, but he was sitting there, him and the, the guy holding his blocks were just running his mouth like, hey, you know, he's calling him Flash, like, hey, you're going to smoke this skinny dude right next to you. And and I'm a small guy, I weighed like 156 pounds, and I was just getting in my blocks, doing my thing, going through my warm-up. And at 200 meters, I realized I was beating him. And I was so intimidated. I was yelling more at myself than at him, but literally I was 200 meters in, and I was screaming at this guy. I just lost my shit. But I ended up just absolutely crushing him. But I was so pissed because I was like, you're supposed to be faster. Than this. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's awesome. Uh, so, so anyway, we, uh, uh, that was my sophomore year. Um, and I had Val in, in class. So I called her Geography Girl. And uh, just because I, I said my, my maturity. But you'll also find out my, my uh, airheadedness was at play there. So um, had her in class. We, we visited, you know, just random things here and there. 
And oh, I worked at the country club. I was a lifeguard, a bartender, as well as a as well as a waiter. And she came to the country club with one of her friends. A friend of hers from had a uh, they had a collaborative membership from Garden City. Her parents were members of the country club down there, and, and apparently you could share memberships from one town to another. And so her and Julie came in, and I was I, on my break. I walked by and I said, "Hey, uh, they had some." I think they had a bag of chips, a small bag of chips and a soda sitting, sitting off to the side. And I said, hey, geography girl, you're going to pick that trash up, right? So, like, now now your jaw is probably hitting the, the floor like, damn, this dude is smooth. <laughs> so, so I'm I wondering how this – I, I know you guys end up together, but I'm still trying to connect the dots here. No, so that's how it even gets better. So – uh, her friend Julie, Val tells this story so much better than I do. Her friend Julie looks over and goes, "Who is that?" She said, "Oh, I have him in class." And she said, "You're not, you're not in uh, geography." She said, "No, it's geography, but he's really cute." <laughs> <laughs> so I've been calling her geography girl for weeks or a couple months or however long it was, and we were in geology class together. So oh, nice. A couple, um, a couple weeks later, saw her at the the Wild Rose that dates dates us quite a bit, and um, just talked and went out on a couple dates to TCBY, and got to know each other. And six months later, we were engaged, and several years after that, we got married. Once we started getting uh, more entrenched in life and prepared for to be adults. <laughs> This is awesome. Very cool. Now, um, now you are the owner, CEO of Driven Nutrition and Titan Nutrition, and that's kind of I'm I'm glad we're we're almost 15 minutes in, and and I'm finally kind of introducing you as to kind of how the dots connect here. But um, one of the bigger regrets I have when we started Southwind was, um, I kind of wish that I would have had a standing appointment with you, uh, to just talk business, um, because you have done so many different things. Uh, Oh, one of the things when I was trying to fall asleep last night, I'm like, I need to ask him about being a serial entrepreneur. Um, you know, I think a lot of people hear that term and think it's a bad thing because they maybe associate it with being a serial killer too, but, um, (laughs) being a serial entrepreneur is almost as bad because you're kind of killing yourself in all of your different endeavors. But I know you've learned a lot of valuable lessons through the years. Um, you, I guess, um, we first met in Taekwondo and that's going to be a different question for later on, but, um, you own the, the GNC in, in our mall here in Hayes, um, and you owned others as well. Is that right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, one out in Sedalia, Missouri. Okay. So um, through owning GNC and then um, all your other business adventures, I kind of wanted to touch on a few of those. Coffee Rules was was really cool. Uh, I know we, we missed that around here. Uh, but – what are some of the, the lessons that you learned from different businesses throughout the years? Um, 
I know they probably yeah. all had their individual lessons. Yeah, it uh, and it's it's one I'm still learning, Tucker. Um, it uh, you know, I I started my entrepreneur journey in in my early twenties, and you know, I'm forty least forty six this year. One of the one of the biggest struggles that I've had is being okay with who you are, um, and it's really been over the last probably the last three to four years that I've really been able to find my voice and share share what I know without worrying about well it, it, the worries are still there, um, but without letting the worries control what I hold back on, what I what I share, what I have a conversation about, or um, whether or not I'm abrasive, whether or not I rub somebody the wrong way. Um, and I've just found that just because somebody is offended doesn't mean they're right, and it also doesn't mean that, that I'm right. So everybody has their own truths. Uh, but I share that because in my 20s, I was always nervous and concerned. Like, oh, geez, I'm, I'm young, I'm a kid. Are people actually going to to trust what I say, uh, whether it's about sales or marketing. And even though I was, I was a voracious reader, studied as much as I could, just I, I really tried to learn a lot. I spent really my 20s just constantly reading books on sales, marketing, psychology, um, business practices, you know, ethical management, not knowing what I was doing, but just basically that was, that was something I was fascinated by. If they all seemed to kind of converge and in my twenties, I was more concerned about, you know, are people going to judge me because I'm a kid? And then as I got into the fitness industry, I'm a small guy. And I, I, in, in a sense, I won the genetic lottery because I have the metabolism of a cheetah, but also I'm not, I'm not a muscle bound guy. I don't look like what most people think of when they think about the supplement industry, uh, specifically supplement spokespeople. Go ahead. I'm going to interrupt you real quick. Where did that, um, appetite for knowledge come from? Cause a lot of, a lot of 20 year olds or a lot of guys that I talk to, I'll, I'll say something like, Oh my gosh, you got to read this book. Uh, it'll, it'll really help your, your business journey or your, or your fitness journey. And they're like, Oh yeah, I don't, I don't read. I'm like, what do you mean you don't read that? That's like, <laughs> there's so much knowledge there and you don't set aside time to read and expand what you want to get better at. Um, but I, I mean, I'm fortunate. My dad said, you know, here, read this book. Like, it's not an option. Get it done because it's going to help you. And, and so I had that. But where did that come from for you? Um, I would probably say my dad. He used to read a lot of Louis L'Amour books. You know, my dad's a retired highway patrolman from there in Hayes. And he used to read a lot of Louis L'Amour books. And he just said, you know, there's, there's a lot of good um, values that are built into these books that are built around stories. So just read a couple of them if you find that you're interested in them. And, and I did. I think I probably read every Louis L'Amour book by the time I was a junior in high school. And there is, even though those are kind of fanciful westerns, there's a lot built around uh, values, but it also does a good job of bringing into focus um, the good and the bad out in the world and how how their stories are told from both sides. And um, I, I, Louis L'Amour was an amazing storyteller and 
being able to cre- create a empathetic journey for the good guy, but also the bad guy fascinated me. And, and then that kind of drove me into psychology, um, the whys behind people do things. And then, oh, a good friend of mine, Tony Hackett, uh, lived there in town, and he introduced me to Tony Robbins when I was 18. Uh, I was a freshman, and at that point I was sold. Like, wow, okay, there's, there's somebody out there that is basically giving the roadmap of quote-unquote success in the business world. And it, and it made sense to me. Yeah, Tony um, Robbins will definitely light a fire in your in your britches to to learn and to and to make yourself better. That's for sure. And I think this this would have been back in the time when you would have had to order his stuff on cassette tape, probably. Oh yeah, dude. There was CDs didn't exist, dude. <laughs> there was no MP3 players. Uh, we had. Uh, I still remember. So once I got into Tony, you know, uh, Awaken the Giant Within. Uh, Personal Mastery, I think, was another one that I loved. There's 12, 12 or 24 cassettes in that tape, and I just just consumed them like crazy. And what I, what, what I started figuring out was, like, you know, I'm spending a lot of time in cars or I'm spending a lot of time running or exercising at the time. I worked at the country club, and my parents lived all the way on the opposite side of town over by the high school, so I just... Um, uh, I would mountain bike from Hayes High, basically, to the country club, three or four miles to go to work, and then on the way back, and I just started listening on that, you know, cassette Walkman, and then anytime we were in the car, and I, and I still to this day, it's a practice I follow. Um, I don't necessarily listen to music. I'm either listening to a book and or um, a podcast here and there, but it's primarily books. That's awesome. So then, um, you're, you're on this entrepreneur journey. Uh, where's the first stop? What's the first kind of business or investment that you start in? And I guess I, before you answer that, I wanted to kind of preface that with, I, I totally get where you're coming from when you're, um, when you're the business owner, you're, hesitancy in not pissing off your clients because they, they write your paycheck. It's, it's really tough, especially like you said, when you're young or you, you don't fit the, the expectations that they have. I I mean, I struggled this with, with this for a long time being a 20 something insurance salesman because everybody expects the insurance salesman to be the, the 40, 50 year old overweight guy who couldn't make it in any other business. And then I show up and they're like, you're a kid, you don't know anything. And so I, I totally get where you're coming from on that, on that point of view. But I'll tell you the the same fear, man, it translates. I mean, it, the fear is different than what you're scared of. The fear is, I'm not good enough. The fear is people will judge me based off of how I'm perceiving other people in the industry. So it's not, it's not people's perception of you. It's your, your reality that you're creating around. And I'm talking specifically about me, uh, your reality that you're creating around how you see yourself and how you see how other people in your position are evaluated 
by others. And you really can't e- even know that. You really can't know the other people in the position. You can't know the the customers who are who you're anticipating how they're judging those other people in those positions. And you know, I said it's something I dealt with in the 20s and 30s. And then as I've started getting older, you know, my my beard's gray, my hair's gray. Like every time Val gives me a haircut. Uh, you know, I, I said, is, "Are we are we over the are we over the hump where there's more gray than black?" She said, "No, nope, not yet." So, so but it, th- there's always something. It's whether you're you're too young, or you're not big enough, you're not strong enough, you don't you don't you're not a games athlete, or now you know in in an industry where things are so coveted of whether it's the trappings of wealth showing, you know, people popping champagne bottles on their Lambo, you know, with a six pack and, um, you know, they, they are 25 years old talking about how much money they made last month. I've just found that I don't, I don't really, over the last three years, I don't really pay a lot of attention to that other than just look at it and feel a little bit sad for them. Um, because they're, they're in that same trapping. They're projecting what they think their clients want to see as opposed to just being who they are and trying to attract the people that they want to be around. Sure. That makes sense. Do you find that, or did you find that when you were younger and it almost felt like you had something to prove, it drove you to, um, just be better and be more informed and to be smarter and to learn what you needed to do to succeed? Yeah, you know, I definitely had a chip on my shoulder. Um, you know, I was I was voted well. I tied for biggest airhead in high school in my class. Um, I literally I shouldn't have graduated from high school. Um, my one of my professors, I won't say who, gave me a D minus because I'd gone up like thirty days before and asked, "Hey, hey, how am I doing? How's how's my grades looking?" He said, "Oh, you're fine," because I was always in class. I always participated. I was always there but he never looked. So we're walking up to graduation at, at the Coliseum and I hear somebody yell rule. And I turn around and he's sitting in his car eating Burger King. I can still, still see him sitting there. And he said, uh, he said, you weren't shitting. You didn't do dick this semester. And like, I'm in, I'm in my robe. <laughs> Am I not going to graduate? <laughs> and he said, he said, but he said, you came to me. And you asked me to look into it way ahead of time. I failed. I didn't, I didn't look to see, but he said, you shouldn't have passed, but you got a D minus. Go get your ass on stage. Wow. (laughs) That's awesome. So, but I I was never a good student. Um, but there were always things that always fascinated me and, you know, you know, specifically why people do some of the things they do, um, how to lead, um, leaders, you know, the founding fathers, I studied very heavily. And, you know, getting into that really has helped, you know, kind of navigate and go through the process of being comfortable with who I am and and not so much worried about how other people perceive me and just tell my story, share what we do. That's cool. Where, so what was the first, the first uh, business, the first entrepreneurship journey that you went on? The first entrepreneur journey that I went on, I was in, I think I was a senior. I started a quote-unquote company. It wasn't a company. It was, I lived with my parents. Uh, I called it uh, their safety in numbers. 
and um, reading marketing, reading sales, one of the big motivating factors that affects people's purchasing is fear. Like, what will happen if will you answer this? So one of my, and at the time, nobody had numbers on their curbs in Hayes. So I thought, so I wrote up the sales letter and their safety in numbers by, at night, if you're in an emergency or if your family is sick, will the emergency responder be able to find your location with your address? That's why we started Safety in Numbers, where we just had stencils and we painted numbers on people's curbs. That's awesome. I just saw this the other day. Um, I think it was on a social media post, and they said that this um, this poor guy still just takes that same letter that you wrote up, you know, many years ago, and just sticks it on everybody's door, and then they call him up, and he charges twenty twenty five bucks or whatever, and and gets it done. But then they did the math on how much money he made in a day or two doing that, and his only cost is a couple cans of spray paint and stuff. And mm-hmm. they're like, okay, never mind. This poor guy is making <laughs> bank. Yeah. That, that, and he has the life he wants. Yeah. If he doesn't want, I mean, how many times do you need to, how many times do you need to, to paint that on there? Every two or three years, you put somebody on a maintenance package where they're covered for a decade. And it's, a, you know, it's just basically 25 bucks every, every two or three years you get clients where it's built up and it's just automatic billing and away you go. Yeah. But yeah, that dude, regardless of the amount of money in his bank, he's wealthy. Oh yeah. Well, and that's, um, I don't know if, if anybody has kind of caught on to it, but I, I call my, my podcast Tuck's weekend, uh, because that's what we've, we built our, our business around the, the final expense business is we go out and we work our asses off one to two days a week. And typically on, on Tuesday, my dad and I call each other and say, the weekend starts now, you know, what do you want to do? You want to go to the lake? You want to go fishing? You want to go work out at the gym? You know, it, it doesn't matter because we can do whatever we want now. Right, right. So, so that was that that was my first business venture. I like it. What's next? Man, this is gonna be a long podcast if we go through all of them. Oh, I know. Um, <laughs> no, so the the next one was a company called Internet Management Systems. Um actually no, I take it back. I got into multi level marketing. Did that with Val. We sold um no one will be surprised by this supplements, a company called Equinox. Got in, was in it for probably about two years, did what everybody does in the multi-level marketing space. Uh, you buy too much product, you don't sell enough product, and you do a better job of getting people in your downline than you do of selling the product. And then what happens is you end up with too much stuff sitting in your closet, not enough revenue coming in, and then we ended up with about twenty-five grand in debt. We actually were doing that uh, into my junior year of college, and... You know, we were we were engaged, and I, why she was still engaged with me, I have no idea. Um, I was still, at the time, I was having major issues with my hips, so I was still running track, but the only training I was doing was in the pool, and then I would train on the day before the track meet for the 4 by one so we would have, you know, smooth handoffs. So when when we realized the amount of debt we had and the amount of income, like, it just... We just weren't happy doing what we were doing, so we decided we're done. And, you know, thankfully I worked my way through college, 
So neither one of us had any college debt, but we had that 25 grand on credit cards that we weren't even getting ahead. Um, so I decided to drop out of school because uh, really the only reason I was going was um, to run track and the way my hip was going and bothering me. Like I wasn't going to be able to make it my senior year anyway. And even if I did, it was going to shred me, um, keep me from being able to do a lot of stuff when I got older. So I made the choice, you know, Val comes from a well-educated family and, uh, I, I really, I didn't care if I had a degree or not, like I can do stuff. So let's go figure it out. Dropped out and had a short stint in, um, uh, delivering bread, actually. You know those big-ass old-home bread trucks? Oh, yeah. Yeah, those are a four-cylinder diesel. And my route was 1,300 miles a week. And there were days where it wouldn't break 45 miles an hour. <laughs> so my average day started at 2.30 in the morning. We were living in campus apartments. And I still remember Val getting up to make me coffee and going back to bed. Like, why she, why she did that or why I deserved that I, I know I didn't deserve it, but why she did it, you know, is a testament to her and her grace. Um, so I did that for about three months, and it was brutal work. I mean, savage work environment from temperatures, no heater, no air conditioner in the truck, to heat, to noise, to just constant constant stimulation. And for somebody who's an introvert, that's, that's a very tough, but I did it, but I did hit my first patch of ice. And that pig slid around on that highway. I got it under control. I called my boss. I said, Chief, you got two weeks. I'm not dying in a bread truck. <laughs> wow. So, yeah. And it, uh, I, and so I decided to go, and um, um, there, was a, there was a job listing for car sales in St. Francis, Kansas. And for whatever reason, I drove up there, and they offered me the job on the spot. And Val goes, you don't want to live in St. Francis. Why would you? I was like, well, I don't know what else to do. She said, why don't you just, like, you know sales. Why don't you just go talk to someone here in town? Honestly, Tucker, that hadn't even crossed my mind. I was like, ah, cool. Yeah, I'll do that. So I went and talked with uh, Lewis Chrysler. And uh, this, this was actually where the four years I spent at Lewis Chrysler were transformative. Not only was I able to take what I knew about sales and marketing and apply it, but I was able to learn it and mold, again, that, that perception of what people had about car salesmen. You don't change no matter what job you do. You're still you. And when people would get to the point where they would be disrespectful or just, you know, and treat, treat me like a car salesman person, I just wouldn't deal with them anymore. I mean, I, I had a standard and, and I said it, and I lived by it, and it didn't always go great because the boss told me, like, I, I'm not dealing with that. I was, from, the time I was, from the time I was there, nobody sold more cars, nobody made more money, and with, with, with that, I learned, like, I, I, can, I can still be me and 23 or 24 years old. Um, I can, I'm not going to let somebody treat me like a bag of trash. Well, I think if, when you learn to sell... And when you learn to to stand up for what you believe in and and still be able to make sales, it's so it's so powerful for everything yeah. for the rest of your life for any industry that you're in. There's there's nothing more powerful than telling somebody that hey, I don't need your business. Y'all have a good day. Bye. Yeah, yeah. You know, I'm sorry, we're not a good fit. 
and, and in business. And, and that everybody's like, yeah, you have the luxury for doing that because of the volume that you guys have. No, like I did that on day one. Sure. And, and you have to, you have to protect yourself. You know, the phrase, you never, you never regret the ones you fire applies both to employees as well as customers. And a lot of times firing a customer before they even become a customer is necessary. Mm-hmm. And it makes your life so much easier. Like no amount of money is worth some of the headache and bullshit that people put on your plate. Yeah, for sure. Didn't you have some hand in designing uh, car buying websites? Yeah, yeah, internet management system. So two years into it, uh, the internet started to become, so I was selling cars for about two years, and Lewis has had, uh, I think, 11 dealerships. And the internet, like I had a web TV, like remember those and dial up, like the whole screechy stuff. Oh, yeah. You you probably don't remember web TV. Uh, But I started, I was like, hey, um, because like a car dealer has a couple million dollars in inventory sitting on, on the lot. So they had 11 of them and it was labor intensive to find out like, Hey, does, cause like we had customers here, they had customers, garden city, Dodge, Topeka. So if there was a way that we could share inventory to know what the other one had, we could have a more collaborative relationship. And even though there's a slight level of competition between the general managers of each of the stores, then it, in the end, the two owners still own all of it. So what's their why? Their why is to move inventory to, to uh, you know, capitalize on capital expenses. So how do, we, how do we consolidate all of this inventory? So I started taking a look at car dealerships' websites, which at the time, you know, places like Mel Hamilton Ford and Hutchison, they paid an Internet manager five grand a month that didn't know shit about car sales. He was a computer nerd, which I use that as a term of endearment. So anybody listening, please don't. Like, I am a nerd. I am a geek. So I'm allowed to call myself that and other nerds. Um, I, I would probably classify you as a nerd, Tucker, the way you study. Um, oh, yeah. I, I totally agree. Um, I It's funny because if you and I were walking down the street, I don't think anybody would look across the street and say, look at those two nerds walking down the street, you know, but then they'd listen to this podcast and be like, oh my God, those guys are two total <laughs> CrossFit computer nerds. Yeah, no problem. <laughs> yep. yep. Um, so long story short with that, um, I, with web TV, I found these websites of, uh, car dealers and I went to the library and I printed off the pages. I'd write down the URL. I didn't know how to copy and paste or email or anything, which from a web TV probably wasn't even possible, but I, I wrote down the URLs and I went and I printed off the parts of the sites that I liked that I thought were meaningful in terms of the customer journey of looking for a car. So I printed off, went to a buddy, uh, asked him if he could build it. He said, no, you need a database engineer. So I found one there at Ward Hayes. And said, hey, I've got, I'm going to go buy a cheap computer, compact. I need to be able to update inventory for my, the car dealership I work at using this Mavica with a three and a quarter disc or whatever it was. I need to be able to take pictures and I need to be able to add inventory in 60 seconds. And I'm not a computer programmer. Can you do that? Sure. So we went through a couple different iterations. And lo and behold, I had this form entry field where you put in the year, make, model, price, miles, description, and then you attach the photo. Like now it's commonplace. 
But then, like, nobody had done it yet. And so I put it all together, and the damn thing worked. Like, in 33 seconds, I could add a car. So you go take 10 pictures of cars, 10 different cars. You can add, you know, in, in a very short period of time, you can add these to the websites. And then I asked the guy, I said, so this is what I'm doing. Do you want, do you want me to pay you 500 bucks, or do you want uh, part of what I'm doing? And he said, ah, just 500 bucks is fine. So I paid 500 bucks for the, for the database, and away we went. Um, I didn't have any experience with web design, so that was the database. So Tony Hackett, the friend that I mentioned earlier, built, built the web interface. Hold on just a second. I'm getting a call. I'm going to turn this to do not disturb because I forgot you could do that. <laughs> I do the same thing. Well, and the other thing too is I'm guessing this is around 2001, 2003, somewhere in there. Um, yep. Hayes America is not the hotbed of web designers and especially not back then. I mean, we've got some good guys around here now, but I I can't imagine that you were – you're probably looking pretty hard to find these guys to help you out with this project. Oh yeah, they didn't exist. So what we ended up with was just this very stripped down website that worked rocket fast that I could update from this cheap compact. Um, and then I wanted to make it to where uh, I could duplicate it. You know, I've got 11 other dealerships or 10 other dealerships that were in the system. And then I wanted to make it to where all of the, all of the inventory would funnel back into one massive database. So, and we did that. And I went to, I went and showed the principals um, at the dealership. And they met. I walked out, got called back in. And he said, I said, what did they think? And they said, and he said, he said, they wanted me to tell you it's not in your best interest to show anyone else this. And I'm, I, I have just enough chip on my shoulder that pissed me off. <laughs> like I was, I was livid. I, I mean, still to this day, my heart rate, I can feel my blood pressure, my heart rate go up because I can still feel, my, feel myself sitting there. And it instantly hit me how stupid of a decision that was. And here I was working my ass off trying to build something so I could save these guys money, help them sell more cars, and have something that no one else in the state had. It was right there. And here they threatened me. Okay, let's go. Yeah. And, yeah, <laughs> right? So, um, thankfully, um, Doug Williams um, it was a, was a, had been uh, a friend, and he had, he, had, he had done some stuff with, with me um, in terms of, like, some light mentoring. Just, he always took me under his wing, and I, I like I still stay in touch with Doug. I'm so grateful for everything that he did for us. And um, we were. It was just so happened that week he was looking for a car and he was driving out. He said, "Jason, he said you always have your uh, head in the clouds looking at something next. What what are you working on these days?" So I told him, and he said, "That's interesting." Um, he said, "Paul uh, Paul McDonald is is a friend of mine, and he that Paul at the time was a consultant for NADA." And he said he'd probably be interested in taking a look at what you have. So we went to Paul's house a couple of days later, and I showed him. And he said, Jason, what you have here is a template 
for what every car dealership in the United States is trying to have built. And you've got it done. He said, what you need to do is license this. And that's what I did. And I also, so when I started building it, I started taking a look at other inventory-based that's why it's called inventory management systems. I took a look at other industries that it would apply to, and it, the other one was realtors. So we got to the point where we were working with realtors, car dealers, motorcycle dealers all across the nation, and Nextech ended up buying that. Nextech and Rural Telephone ended up buying that. And they, uh, one of the requirements was that um, I stay with them for a year on the transition team, um, but also help them with other projects. Like, so... I'm kind of a I'm a weird duck. I can I can talk the computer geek code, but I can also um, see how it translates to consumer behavior and listen to feedback from the customers, and then kind of say, okay, here's here's how we need to position this project, and worked with them on some projects that um, still today are active and going good. Um, and then after a year, um, I bought my first GNC. Year later, I bought another one. I think a few months after that, um, the idea for copy rules came about. Year after that, um, bought the building where the main copy rules and uh, wine and spirits lounge was. Um, and yeah, just one thing after another, just one iteration, trying to learn as much as I could about business, about finances, um, managing people. Man, that's all that. That's awesome. Uh, what advice? Because what advice would you have for somebody who has an idea like that and is scared to share it with anybody for fear that it's going to get stolen and them just make your idea that you just gave them? I would say that probably comes from a place of fear and failure to launch. Um, and that's here's the thing: that's not something that I haven't dealt with personally. Um, but when it comes down to it, I used to be I used to be scared about telling people what we did for Driven um, for a couple of reasons. One, it's it's hard. Like our business is built to help gyms, specifically CrossFit gyms, sell supplements to their members. It's products that the members are buying, but it's revenue that's not staying in the gym. So we have a very public facing company, and that's the dialogue. Like how do how do you explain that? So that was one reason I was scared to share what we did because I, I was afraid not only gym owners would be uncomfortable talking about profits. Ooh, it's a dirty word, right? Like, thankfully, now it's not, but seven years ago it was in CrossFit. But also, you know, what if other people figure out what I do? And then, then you run into this, this little uh, mental barrier that just goes over and over and over again. So how do you tell people what you do without telling people what you do? How do you get better at it? How do you bounce the idea off of people where, because your first idea is going to suck. First time you do a double under, you're going to whip yourself. Same thing with a muscle up. But you have to be willing to bounce the idea off of people to use it as a, as a roar shock test or a litmus test of, hey, here's my idea. What do you think? Don't take everything they say as gospel because they, they don't know it as well as you do, which means that they don't know it or you as well as you do. And the truth is, ideas are shit. If you can't execute on it, your idea doesn't matter at all. 
And if your idea is good and you're truly a master, if you've thought it through and you're committed to success, not in making that idea 100% successful, but you're committed to success, success in terms of making yourself better, good enough to achieve those goals, then no one else has that skill set. No one else gives a shit as much about that idea as you do. So, yeah, they may be able to take the idea, but they're not you. So if somebody's scared that somebody's going to take their idea, they're more than likely scared that they're not good enough to pull it off. I like that. That's good advice. Um, this, so this is working out perfect. Um, GNC is, you got two, two or three of them, right? Two. Okay. Um, it's time for Taekwondo. This is where you and I first met. And I think I, I'm curious as to how you got involved with Taekwondo and also, Uh yeah, let's start with that. How'd you, how'd you get started up in Taekwondo? Uh, so I got started in Taekwondo. I was walking home from Sturdy Bodies and, um, I think I was just recently, I just recently, I was probably 20, so I was, or 21, I was probably selling cars. And I lived over in apartments there, um, by the country club. So I'd, I would walk and, you know, it was over on Ninth street or whatever it is, 10th street, the one way. And I saw it through the glass. I was like, Oh, that's cool. And I used to, I used to box. I used to box golden clubs when I was training for track, um, to help with footwork. And so like Taekwondo, I was watching, I was like, that's a lot of footwork. I've got pretty quick feet. Oh, I might, I might dig this. (laughs) So I went in and watched and, uh, um, and uh, liked what I saw and started and signed up and just started going. And then not too long after that, Val started. Yeah, that's cool. It's Taekwondo is interesting and it, it's always interesting too. Cause we, I mean, we've talked a little bit about age and, and having um, preconceived notions about, you know, I'm older than you or you're older than me and, and different things like that. But um, I think I was a little ahead of you guys. And so, the, um, the kind of the unwritten rules in Taekwondo of, of respecting your higher ranking and stuff. And so I'm mm-hmm. this, I'm this kid who's probably 10 years younger than you guys. And you're calling me sir and stuff. It's just a, a weird world to live in. Yeah. But a good one to instill in a, in a, in a kid that age, because you know, it instills like, Hey, it doesn't matter what you do matters more than really anything else. Yeah. And the, I, one of the things that I loved about Taekwondo was the, the rigid, um, technique that, that they instilled in us. And I mean, it, there's a reason why I, I didn't like the, the leadership there because it didn't really vibe with the technique that they were trying to instill with us. But, uh, definitely a lot of good lessons learned in the, the hours spent there. Yeah, for sure. I agree with that a hundred percent. So it was very easy for me to walk into GNC and see my friend Jason, who I did Taekwondo with and kicked in the head and he kicked me in the head a few times. Um, <laughs> but what I, I really loved and I, I didn't appreciate this at the time. I only appreciate it looking back was you educating my mom more than me about why it's okay to take creatine. Um, and 
I remember even taking that first iteration of Crex back in the day. That did, oh man, yeah, didn't wasn't it like cinnamon flavored? Cinnamon. Yeah. Oh god, that was horrible. <laughs> so bad. It's so much better now. <laughs> yeah, it is so much better. Where did uh, let's start with that um, with educating customers at mm-hmm. GNC it seemed like that was more important than selling them something, right? Oh yeah, for sure. Um, and that's not, that's not a hundred percent, you know, altruistic, you know, I, it, thankfully with marketing, with sales, you know, I learned through whether it was the books through experience that, you know, it, it takes a lifetime to build a reputation. It takes five minutes to ruin it. And whether you're selling cars or whether you're selling creatine, you know, it's not the first sale that matters. It's the hundredth. And you use the first sale to get to the hundredth. And everyone in between and all of that behavior needs to be congruent and needs to be consistent. And it needs to be based off of the values and the way that you want to be, to be known, you know. And thankfully, there in town, um, we, we, ha- we have a good name. You know, we're, we're hardworking people. We're honest. You know, uh, my dad did an amazing job of establishing our family of, you know, we just, we're hard workers. We don't talk a lot. We don't say a whole lot. We just go do what needs to be done. And if we say we're going to do something, it's going to get done. And that was instilled in me in a very early age. Um, my brother did the same. Uh, you know, he ended up, he has three boys and they all did sports there in Hayes and they were, all amazing athletes. And so I took it, I took it as an obligation to, to be a good steward of, as everyone should, of what you're giving. You know, like, I don't know if you golf, but I like the term, leave it in better condition than you found it. And your name, your reputation, your family's name is all connected to that. And, and in business, you're, you're more visible. Like you're, you're consciously putting yourself out there showing people what you do and then it needs to match what you say. And when people would walk through the doors of kids specifically, I would treat them as though they were my nephews. I would talk to them. I would tell them the things I know, the pitfalls that, that I dealt with. I would talk to the parents to get over some of the concerns that they have, some of the misconceptions. And it got to the point where I used to go, um, I'd get invited to schools and go talk to, you know, the student athletes. And it got to a point where I wouldn't even go unless the parents were there. Um, just because I didn't want something to be misunderstood. If I'm going to piss somebody off or if I'm going to offend somebody, it's going to be because of what I said, not because of what somebody else said I said. And that happens a lot with kids, right? So like they all, they all tell their parents what they're, what they think their parents want to hear. So when I would give talks about supplements, I was very direct. I was very blunt. And um, having that conversation with just kids without involving the parents isn't doing the kids any favors. Sure. So, yeah, it's that game of telephone. And uh, yeah. you get something lost in, in translation. Um, but going back to what you said about your dad, I mean, I can, I can remember getting my ass chewed for mowing lawns and, and doing a bad job. And then my dad driving by that lawn later on, and, and he said, hey – your signatures on that lawn. Everybody knows the malls do that lawn. You need to go fix it. And I'm like, yep. you got it. 
you know, that was just a, yeah. a valuable lesson in forever. Yeah, it is. Um, now, I want to go back to CREEX because that was a a formulation that you came up with, right? That was a formulation that we actually – what is it? Uh, good artist borrow, great artist steal. <laughs> there, there was a company that made – I started Titan because I was pissed off. I had enough. The sub the supplement industry is full of or has been the same cycle for most companies. You know, EAS, cybergenetics or cybernetics, uh, Joe Weeder, they all follow the same system. They create a really good product. It's groundbreaking. EAS was creatine, phosphogen. Uh, and then they get into, you know, uh, Joe Weeder was meal replacements, protein. They get into it and then they start creating success. They start moving thousands, if not millions of units a month. And then they start reducing their raws. They start going to a cheaper raw ingredient. And at the time, really the internet wasn't much of a thing. So there was a little bit of internet competition, but there was a company that made a really good pre-workout. The sales rep called me up and said, hey bro, you know, he's always hustling. He said, you know, got great news. You know, we're we're changing the formula of this product. And here's what we're doing. And he's rattling off these new ingredients of what he's changing or what was being changed in it. And this is, we were, this, this company still exists. It's huge in the industry now. And we were like number three or four to bring it into the GNC system for franchisees. And as he's rattling all this stuff off, I'm, I, like, I'm visual. Like, I, I've got a whiteboard in my head, so I'm checking these things off, like, that's worse than this. That's worse than this. And he said, well, the bad news is, is, you know, even though we made all these improvements, you know, the bad news is we've, we have to raise your cost just a little bit. So it's not a big deal. It's going to go up about 25. But while it's all these changes, it's going to be more than worth it. So I sat there and I gave myself like a five count. And he said, so what do you think? And I said, I'm not ordering anything from you ever again. And he just sat there. And I said, there's... Everything you just read off about this formula is worse. And it had you called me up and said, hey, Jason, here's the thing. The product we're making, we're losing money on. So we either need to raise the cost five, six bucks, which isn't practical. It puts us out of the market. Or we need to change the raws. Like the, the product we made isn't viable. We can't continue down the path. So here's the raws that we're going to be using as alternatives. And here's the difference. That would have been a different conversation, but you didn't. You called me and you lied to me. So we're done. I just hung up. Um, and uh, the owner, actually, who, who I knew, um, called me and said, dude, what's going on? Like, you were, you were one of the first GNCs to bring us in. And so I just relayed it. He said, what are you talking about with the Raws? And I, as I started listening off, it hit me. Like, I know what I'm talking about with this stuff. And I never thought about it. And... And he said, so what are you going to do? I said, I think I'm going to just start my own and compete against you. He said, good luck with that. Thanks. And I hung up. Okay. And I got to, I got to interrupt here real quick because, uh, I don't, I haven't been in our GNC for ages. Um, but one thing I always did appreciate going in there and we talked about nerds earlier, the, the guys that worked, especially at your GNC are total nerds. 
all you guys yep. did was sit there on your computer and study uh, ingredients and stuff like that. And you could go in and bullshit with these guys and tell them things you've heard and they'd be like, Oh no, that's not right. Or, Oh yeah, you're, you're right on that. You should, this is what you're talking about, right? Here's the product that you, you know, that'll fit what you're asking about. And it was just, it's refreshing for people to know what the hell they're talking about. Uh, but then you understand when somebody calls you up and is, is trying to screw with a product, you're going, hold on just a second. I've done my research. I know what you're trying to do here. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. So just to, for those who don't know what we're talking about, CREEX is a, a pre-workout and it's something that, um, you quote unquote stole, um, but made improvements to, and has been around for what, 20, 25 years, maybe 16 years, okay. yeah, tighten the 16 years. So, um, you know, then I had the luxury of you know, just, hey, let's just take that formula, um, find a, uh, a certified good manufacturing practice uh, manufacturer, control where the raws are brought, make sure that we're doing spectral analysis to make sure that every raw matches every batch consistently over time. So that was just a, an early SOP that we put in place that, that maintained the integrity of the raws, which in the end maintains the integrity of the product. And that's, that's how we got started with, with, uh, with Titan. And then, you know, one of those, one of those nerds that, that worked for me, his name was Brian King. And, uh, he ended up moving out to Springfield, Missouri. And so I couldn't own any, any of the company because it was a conflict of interest. Um, so Brian did, Brian, Brian ran it and he's one of the smartest supplement people I've ever met and it's through his iterations and his research that, that that product has grown and evolved the way that it, uh, it is. And he looks like a bodybuilder. He, yeah, he does. He's a big boy. Yep, for sure. So how, how did you move to driven? Why and why is driven different? than other supplement companies? And if I can make this question even more difficult and longer, how do you um, set yourself apart in a business that has almost no checks and balances? You don't have to have anything FDA approved. Um, there, There's um, documentaries out there showing how to start a, a sham supplement company and make probably millions of dollars by filling your stuff with cheap fillers and literally giving you the blueprint to scam people. What gives you the, the balls to say, Hey, no, we're going to do it right. That's a huge question. That that is. So, what was your first? What was your first question? I'll come back to the last one. Let's say how is how did you come up with the idea to start Driven Nutrition and kind of leave GNC behind and move more towards the Driven CrossFit uh, model? Gotcha. 
So I had sold, so I had sold GNC, and it was I really didn't get involved again at Titan for almost two years. Um, I just completely moved on from it. It was kind of on pause. Uh, Brian was doing his thing with uh, with the stores that he was in, and he asked asked me to start getting more heavily involved from an operation standpoint. Um, you know, he was doing he was doing personal training, so he didn't have a lot of time to reach out to stores and. Um, as well as just systems. How do we invoice people? How do we maintain levels of inventory? Where does the money come from? That type of thing, like the business side of things that I had a lot of experience with. Uh, I was actually absent from that for almost two years. Um, so with, with Titan, I came on. We doubled in six months. We doubled again six months later, and it was going great. You guys were selling Titan at your, at your gym, and we went. I actually hopped on a plane. It was one of the only two other times that I'd been to Springfield, Hopped on a plane from Salina, flew out um, at HOA Four, Heartland of America. So it's a competition that Jeremy Meyer puts on. It's amazing, and we were we were a sponsor of of HOA, and we had a big Titan booth there. And I started noticing stuff. One thing I noticed was how nice everybody was, and I really liked that. It felt like it felt like track. It felt like competition. You know, people cheering for last place. I was so I was so amazed by that, by the by the goodness of it. Also, I mean it's expensive. So like the people who are doing CrossFit can't afford to buy stuff. You know, whether it's clothes, supplements, that type of thing. And one of those one of those examples was Progenics. They were eighty bucks uh, for a bag. And they were there. True story. They were there. I walked over. Tight didn't have a protein. You know, we just had five or six products. I walked over, tried it. I said, man, this is really good. It tastes like brownie mix. What do you get for a bag? He said, it's two bucks or uh, 80 bucks. Like, is that for five pounds? So keep in mind, I was coming from stores. And he said, no, no, bro, that's two. Two? I said, do you actually sell it? Keep in mind, this is like my first experience in CrossFit. Like, I, I didn't know anything. I didn't know anybody. And he goes, and he just laughed. He said, we're constantly selling out. And he said, he said, we mostly sell in gyms, but we're also direct to consumer. I remember smiling, and I said to myself, I'm going to fucking bury you guys. Yes. Okay. And so, Hold on. So the reason. Okay, no, go, go ahead. ahead. Go ahead. No, ask a question. Okay. So um, I, was, I was very convinced that I introduced you to, to Progenics. Um, I don't know if you remember this or not, but this, you taught me so much in like two seconds at a GNC, but I remember bringing you progenics in GNC and they had this weird, weird ass formulation of something they swore had like 90 grams of protein in one scoop. (laughs) And I remember you explaining me this through just critical thinking, like Tucker, this cannot work. You have a 30 gram scoop. There's no way they can put 90 grams of protein in a 30 gram scoop. Somebody's lying to you. And I'm like, y- yes, sir. I understand what you're saying, uh, but I don't know. Like it says it right here on their website. Look, you know, and, and I can, I can remember, I don't think I brought, bought progenics after that because you're right. It is delicious, but once you break down the cost per scoop, the the cost going into that thing, you're like, man, these guys are crazy. And then, you know, yeah. lo and behold, whatever, five years later or something, they have this huge 
blow up that the cross they can't sponsor the CrossFit Games and stuff anymore. But I'm sure we'll get into that here in a little bit. But go ahead, you're going to bury them. Yeah. So because like it was this, it was like all of these railroads converging at, at a split second. Was seeing because these are commodities coming from the GNCs. I realized like there were stores that overcharged for products, commoditized products, whether it's creatine, fish oil, that type of thing. I saw firsthand that is a short-term business model. It's incredibly profitable short-term, and then those then they go out of business. And it's not a pleasant out of business. It's not like they have a golden parachute and they leave. They just get bled because their inventory levels go high because people are realizing you're overcharging for a commodity. You can't do that unless you have a captivated audience. And eventually, that captivated audience, the ether wears off. The excitement wears off because eventually what you find is if you are buying a two-pound bag of protein that's 80 bucks, eventually you're going to come across somebody that knows what they're talking about, and they're going to say, look, like it's a thin degree of separation. Even if this is a, you know, a, a better isolate or it's a hydrolyzed versus an isolate, it's not worth 100% more. So the degree of separation for somebody like me, you know, I'm, I'm a station wagon. Like I don't need a high-octane fuel to repair I just, I just need a good protein so I can help stay lean so I can recover and not be near as sore. So now, when, when you're looking at that in a marketplace, like CrossFit, when there was 2,000 affiliates, yes, a company like Progenics can exist. They can buy their way into coolness, whether it's through sponsorships. But eventually, that's one of the railroads that I saw colliding into the thought was, not only was it bodybuilders versus CrossFitters, like, here's the thing. I mean, it's just fitness. And if somebody wants to do CrossFit, cool, man. Like, enjoy it. If somebody wants to do physique training, cool. Like, that's like if that's you, do you, man, and do it all the time. If you want to be a meathead, if you want to go to the gym and have, you know, jack biceps or jack triceps and small legs, cool. Like, do that. But at the time, it was bodybuilders versus CrossFitters. And I remember I was sitting next to Jared Stevens, and we were eating from the paleo wagon. And uh, it was, you know, eggs, peppers, onions, lots of oil. And I said, this is really good. I said, but do you eat like this all the time? He goes, yeah, dude, you get jacked, you get shredded. I said, yeah, but if you want to beat everybody out here, eat like a bodybuilder. Like, eat like a bodybuilder. Fuel yourself, proteins. And that's when that other rail collided of it's, Eventually, it's not going to be bodybuilders versus CrossFitters. Like, it's macros. It's Meatheads, bodybuilders have been doing macros for 30 or 40 years. It's not new. It's just now it's sexy and cool because people are doing it and charging a boatload of money for it. But in the end, you have to eat like an athlete. You have to feel like an athlete. And paleo isn't the way for if you're truly trying to be an athlete. I know because I did that in college when I was in track, I shredded down. Like, I was sub- four or 5%. I was absolutely shredded, but I had no energy, 154 pound sprinter. And I was carb depleted, probably in ketosis, ketosis, whatever it is ketosis, for yeah. two to three weeks at a time. Um, but it was all of those worlds that combined that I realized like, okay, we've got a product that is over here. That is it's people are drinking the Kool-Aid because it's cool and sexy. You've got a group of people who have the ability to influence each other. They're genuinely good people. You know, law enforcement, past firefighters, military, desire to serve. And they were coming to me saying, hey, what do you guys do? What do you take pre-wad? What do you take post-wad? I'd never heard that term before. Like, what in the hell is that? 
pre-war and post-war, you guys got this little language. So uh, as soon as I left that competition, I bought the domain name pre-war and post-war, and that was our first two products. And But as I started working with gyms, your guys' uh, Southwind was such an amazing fertile ground for having a good community of what a gym should be like, but also seeing the compassion that the owners had, but the compassion that the members had for the owners. Like, it's the only industry I've ever seen where the customers genuinely want the owners to be successful, not just because they know and love them, but because they want you there. They want you to be open. They want that community, which means they're willing to pay 150 bucks to show up to lift weights. Holy shit. But at the time, seven years ago, gym owners were scared to make a profit. They were coming to me saying, hey, I don't care if I make a profit. I just want a really good product off of my members. And I looked at them and I said, well, that's one, that's admirable, but two, that's stupid. If you're doing anything from a business standpoint and you're going at it from the standpoint of I don't need to make a profit, don't do it. Because your members can still go buy those same products. They're probably going to get retargeted. They're probably going to get a coupon. They're going to be able to buy it slightly above your cost. So don't do it. Go focus on something in your business that helps the business. Don't be a martyr. Yeah. And I remember telling, I remember telling you, like, I won't, I won't put anything in here that I don't take. I can't tell my clients to use anything that I won't use. Yep. And every gym owner is that way. I was the same way with my stores. Well, but every gym owner didn't have your experiences and they didn't have my experiences. So my thought was, is how do I bring my experiences, my expertise in a world where the supplement industry is, is rife with not good people. There's, there's a lot of good companies out there. A lot of people ask me, Hey, what's the difference between you and them? Like, I don't know. I don't like, they seem like a good company. I've checked out their labels. They seem legit. Um, but there's a lot out there that don't. So I was, so you, your question of how do you stand out? This was, this was, this was an eye opening moment. It happened, I think, five years ago. I was at a mastermind in California with Shrugged. And, um, oh, I can't remember his name right now. Uh, affiliate number two out in LA. Uh, he, he was, we were talking and I was talking to the group and just all of a sudden he goes, dude, you're weird as shit. <laughs> <laughs> And I stopped. I stopped. I said, well, thanks. He said, no, I, like, I mean that as a compliment. He said, I've been in, like, I, I, being affiliate number two, like, he's OG. He's seen worlds collide and universes created. And he said, no, like, I mean that as a compliment. He said, when, like, we're wired to see weird. Like, when we're walking through the woods with a spear on our back, if something moved incredibly fast, we had to see it. Otherwise, we died. And he shared his, his wife was an Olympic sprinter. He said, when, when you would go to a track meet, and you've seen it, like you've been to a CrossFit competition, you've been to a track meet. When you go and you see a specimen of a certain level, it almost seems like they're brighter. Our minds can't help but notice weird. And when we see weird, we have to pay attention to it. Otherwise, we die. So his story really resonated with me. I was like, okay, so let's, I'm, I'm going to start being comfortable with being me 
and maybe my level of weirdness will become the norm with time in the supplement industry. And until then, I'm just going to keep being me, and I'm going to tell people what I do and how I do it, and I'm going to be, do it in a very candid, open way because nobody else does. So, um, and this, this is a massive compliment. Like we talked about earlier is, is calling people weird and, and calling people nerds is, uh, you know, they, at first they recoil, but, um, I see, uh, driven very much like two brain business and Chris Cooper, uh, on different levels and different reasons. But, um, I think that's a massive compliment to, to tell you that, that you and, and Chris Cooper have a lot of things in common. But why, why did you pick to be affiliate only? And just to kind of, for those who don't understand what I'm talking about here, when you're talking about affiliate number two, you're talking about CrossFit affiliate number two. Now there's more than 14 or 16,000 affiliates. Um, but CrossFit affiliate number two had to have started back in like 2006, maybe or something like that. Six or seven. Yep. Yeah. Yep. And, uh, to see, to know, to know what he's seen and just the evolution of, of CrossFit over time has to be incredible. Uh, but why paint yourself into a corner? I mean, 14,000 CrossFit boxes. Now we're talking worldwide, um, not just in the U S but Mm-hmm. that's still a smaller number than there are probably GNCs than there are. I mean, I, I travel for work, so I get to see there's all sorts of little almost mom and pop supplement stores on little hidden street corners and stuff like that. Why not have driven in every store? I mean, you can, I think you can buy progenics at, um, Sam's club now. Why not? <laughs> Why not market to Walmart? Because you could have so many more sales. Well, you can't. You can't. You can't start that way. Um, and we have we have the luxury of having one brand in Titan that is in stores. It's in mom and pop retail stores. And at the time, you know, Nutriforce was out there. There was a. Dimatize created a an RX version of protein. Really, really, all it was was watered down version or remarketed versions of their version of what CrossFit looked like. And the majority of CrossFitters at the time, so there was like eighteen hundred or two thousand affiliates when I started Driven, and the majority of those guys were military, past firefighters, law enforcement. The same type of group, the same type of people I grew up around, and they smell bullshit. Like, does it pass the sniff test? Does this look like something I've seen before? Yes or no. And that's normally what was in the cross, CrossFit space, with the exception of Progenics. The other brands were taking their versions of products and advertising, you know, fitness models, bodybuilders at CrossFitters. And it's like a turn in a punch bowl. It just stands out like crazy. It doesn't fit. So, you know, the relationship that, that I had with you guys and the friendship, I, was, I knew the types of people you guys were. 
and that that type of person isn't the same person isn't the same business owner or the same customer that's in the bodybuilding space and i'm I'm a lot more in tune with the the type of person that's in that owns a gym owns a crossfit gym than I am inside of that bodybuilding space. I was very comfortable it, it felt it felt natural to me. These are my people and so that was one. noticing the impact that gym owners had like i mean here's the thing how long how long did you own your gym about six seven years okay so how long did it take the normal person to buy a pair of metcons or nanos after they started crossfit oh yeah i mean a month maybe two right right so can you get that at a store that that level of influence can you get that level store at a regular traditional iron gym? Like, are, are people going to model behavior of what they see right. out there? Are they going to have their own weird words like pre-wad, post-wad? Uh, for anybody who hasn't read Malcolm Gladwell's book, Tribes, it's beautiful. It was very, very instructional and uh, had a lot to do with how, how I built Driven in terms of what we do. Uh, but really, that's the essence of it. CrossFit is... People like us do things like this. This is where we work out. This is the way we dress. This is the way we behave. And one of one of uh, Mavlov's laws is the desire to fit in. Community, and CrossFit was the epicenter of that for fitness for a lot of people, and gym owners' ability to influence the purchasing decision of their customers the only industry that I've ever seen where a business can reach out to its customers and say, hey, we're getting ready to move. Not only is somebody going to bring their truck and a trailer, other people are going to bring beer and a pizza, and it's going to be a damn party. No other, bus- no other business has that. I've never seen it. But also, you've got these businesses being run by people who had the mindset of martyrdom, of I just want to help my client. I don't care if I make a profit. That doesn't work long term. The uh, so I felt. Oh, go ahead. The other beautiful thing is, is we we did a move. We got to see firsthand what you just said, and there is one other beautiful thing that I got to see during that move was you're right. Not only did we have a ton of help, not only did somebody show up with their truck and trailer and some beer and pizza, but I got to watch my members who I taught movements to have good form in picking up odd objects and throwing (laughs) them onto trailers. And it was just a beautiful thing to, to see them, you know, bend over with a round and back and then stop and go, no, wait, um, my coach is watching me move this, which it doesn't really <laughs> matter and drop their butt and chest up and, and, and throw something onto the trailer. And I'm like, wow, that was, that was amazing. <laughs> so did you know rep anybody when they left? Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's good. That's awesome. So it, it that desire to be not, not desire. They, they felt that the only way, to sell something was if it was in the best interest of the client and not make a profit. So I built a business model around selling something that's a good product 
that they enjoy using, that they feel comfortable giving to their members, and is required to make a profit. And then we started teaching the systems and the tactics on how to do that. You know, I used to teach people how to run stores. You know, so it's, it's not real hard, but it's, it's alien. And a lot of my competition, they haven't run stores. They, they didn't go to a gym like Southwind. They think it's about, they think it's about popularity. The truth is these are commodities, protein, creatine, amino acids. They're commodities. Do they match specs? Do they taste good? Do they blend good? That's really the benchmark. After that, it's not rocket science. How do you so my how do you go ahead? How do you create good products and stay honest and stay good in an industry that's not controlled um, and that has so many people, you know, basically knocking every each other's products down because you don't have to have the FDA approval and all that other BS. How do you stay mm-hmm. honest and, and good? Well, I mean, that's, that's the only way to stay in business. Honestly, um, eventually it's, it's going to come out, but, uh, in practice, um, here's, here's an example. Uh, there are manufacturers and there are brokers Brokers work with manufacturers, and normally if you Google, if you were to say, hey, I want to find a supplement manufacturer, you're going to come across 100 pages of brokers. And um, when, when you're navigating those waters, I've been to every facility that we work with. I walk through the doors. I review their batch sheets. I review the spectral analysis. Now I actually get an email with Every batch sheet before, after, um, after they get the raws in, they order our raws specifically for us, and they do spectral analysis and they send it over, and then I approve it, and then it goes in the bottles. And another thing that we do that 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 I've always done from day one is when I start working with people, I tell them like I want you to make a profit. I'm going to be a really weird customer. I'm going to pay our bills on time. I, I'm going to not beat you up over pricing because I want quantity, I want quality, and I want consistency, which means you need to make a profit. If I beat you down on price, then you have an obligation to yourself, to your bills, to your employees to, to make a profit. I want you to make us a good product, so we're going to vet every ingredient, and I'm going to pay a premium for it. And so what that does is really in this industry is – where a lot of times people are buying stuff on terms. Like I, I, I pay for everything up front, which in manufacturing is really uncommon. But also, when I need something, if I make a mistake or I don't plan well for inventory, um, that, gives me, that gives me some clout because I don't ask for stuff. I want them to make a profit. I want them to be there, and I don't change manufacturers unless something happens and then we have a very hard conversation, but they know from day one, I want you to make a profit. These are the reasons. And if we can't, if we can't come together, if you can't meet those terms then we're just not going to work together very long. One of the fun things of, um, being on the ground floor with driven, um, I guess we're, 
we were affiliate number two, right, for, with Driven? Yep. Yeah, so Jared Stevens was number one and, and Southwind was number two on the list. But I, like I said, I'm a, I'm a business nerd. I love even just watching businesses and learning from, from what you're doing and being able just to see it you know, kind of behind the curtain of what you guys do at Driven and then watch you bring in uh, Charlotte's Web and kind of be ahead of the curve. I, I'm I'm be- begging to know like how you can see into the future so well because CBD is, is off the charts popular, and, but you were ahead of its popularity, not just ahead of it, but you got the best one out there. And you, how did you do this? How did, how did that story unfold, um, with Charlotte's web? Oh, so, um, CBD goes back to when they found that eloquent little raisin in my back. Um, cause I oh, started wow. when they found that I started studying, um, masses, cancer, inflammation specifically. And so that led me to this weird Israeli study on CBD and inflammation. Same one that same one that the Stanley brothers came across. Mm-hmm. And but at the time Charlotte's web existed but it was illegal. Like this was medical marijuana was a thing. Um, but literally they're the company that created the medical refugee crisis in Colorado. The product that we're able to ship nationwide used to be illegal to take across the border in Colorado. It's just, it's amazing. It's the same exact same product. So where we've come since they found that mass is just amazing to me. So I, anyway, I, I studied CBD. I didn't know that there was really a delineation between different plants. I just had read that CBD had high markers for combating inflammation in the body, which if you've got a little raisin in your spine that you're worried about growing, combating inflammation is kind of at the top of the list. But coming from law enforcement um, family background, like I'm not, I'm not going to do pot. I'm not, I'm not going to smoke weed. It's just not in my values. And I don't judge people who do. It's just, that's, that's me. Um, so I moved on and it wasn't until Elliot was a, a sophomore, he started having problems with his back. And I thought he was just, you know, being a shithead kid, not stretching good, getting tight. Cause I mean, He's, he's got good muscle structure, but he wasn't very disciplined with, with um, stretching and all that. Well, we ended up getting a scan done, and they found that um, what they felt was must have been a hairline fracture in one of his vertebrae that still had a lot of inflammation around it. The fracture was healed, but it was creating a lot of um, stress and pain, so he ended up not being able to train whatsoever between his sophomore and junior year. Like he couldn't ride a bike. He, he just had to be very sedentary. So that took me back to studying CBD again. And then the doors opened up like, oh, shit, this is actually an industry. Not only is it an industry, I know this industry. It's a supplement. And that's when I started looking at it from the standpoint of what it is of a supplement. It's the first time I've ever seen an unbastardized raw ingredient. And what I mean by that is... Creatine is creatine. It matches it. So CBD is CBD, but if you only judge it off of the molecular structure of the 
what is in the bottle. You're doing a massive disservice to yourself or whoever it is you're given to take it because CBD comes from a plant, comes from hemp oil. Hemp is a reclamation plant, which means it reclaims the soil, meaning it takes all of the good and all of the bad out of the soil. When when, uh, Hiroshima got bombed, they planted a ton of hemp all over the place to pull all those heavy metal contaminants out of the soil. Around mining operations, same thing. They plant hemp because it, it reclaims the soil. Now, those, those, the dirties don't go anywhere. They get sucked up and go into the plant. And then if you're talking about taking a tonnage of plant, which I've seen these, these bats, I mean, you're talking about two tons of ground hemp that looks like oregano, you've got a massive amount of either good or bad ingredients in there. So now you take two tons and you condense it down to this black tar type stuff, which is what raw CBD looks like until it's diluted and it's cutting agent, whether it's olive oil or some type of NCT oil, you still have all of those contaminants or you have all of those natural things that Mother Earth put into it. So that's what I mean by it's unbastardized because Charlotte's Web, they maintained their genetic structure of their plant instead of, like, so if, you know, out in western Kansas, you go look at wheat fields, like those are genetically engineered wheat grains that are the same planted year over year over year. Now, they blow, stuff like that. Like, that's one of the reasons, like, you got some lawsuits with Monsanto because people claim, like, oh, they stole my genetics. Well, no, dude. Like, the, the wheat grain blew over into my field. Now you're fucking suing me because you claim that you own the genetic structure of that. Well, Charlotte's Web was, was, is, is in the same mindset, but they wanted to control the genetics of their plant. So they, they bred it up for the CBD content, to breed down for the THC content, and that's they're, they're the threshold for why the federal, federal threshold for industrial hemp is 0.3%, because their plant is below that threshold. That's why you're able to take Charlotte's Web and now take it across state lines. So all of that, all of that side, I, I learned about it. I was like, oh, crap, this is an unbastardized raw. They are owning it. And then I started reading into it, and I saw that they have price protection. I couldn't find their product discounted anywhere else. Every other CBD, every other CBD brand was slinging their stuff, you know, buy two, get four free or whatever it was. Like they're, they're commoditizing the product where you've got one company that its sole focus is one genetic strain, quality of chain of custody, meaning that they own, it goes from the clone to the ground. It's harvested on land they own. It goes to the extraction process at a plant they own, and it's bottled at a plant they own, and then they distribute it. It was very similar to our business model. So I reached out, and I, they, had a, they had a link down at the bottom that said become, become a retailer, and I filled it out. Jeez, this has been three or four years ago. I can't even remember now. I filled it out, and... Um, because I had actually bought, so going back to Elliot, I had actually bought some CBD from Elliot, for Elliot, and the bottle said three milligrams. But everything I was finding on Charlotte's Web, you couldn't find the CBD content. So that made me even more interested because they're not, they're not writing the wave of those three letters. Something is pushing it. And I, I really wanted to know what, like why, everything I find, like 
the best company out there by far in terms of quality, integrity, was Charlotte's Web. But nothing on their website told me why that was. So I filled out the form to become a retailer, and I wanted to find out, like, how much CBD is in the bottle because here I've got one that has three milligrams. I'm going to find out one of theirs has 50 milligrams per serving. Holy shit. What's up with this? So I got an email back uh, that next morning. It said uh, something about it, which is really struck a chord with me. Um, it said, hey, appreciate the email. Um, I can't remember the gal's name. I, I feel bad. Um, the email said, hey, we appreciate your interest, but we're actually in the process right now of uh, turning off retailers and distributors, um, and it looks like you just have an online presence, so we wouldn't be interested in working with you. Real to the point. So I started typing up this reply. I was like, no, I'm just going to call. So I picked up the phone, called the number on the on it, and it was this gal's number for SigFile. She and since has changed it to where SigFile didn't have her cell phone. And so I told her how it was. She said, yeah, I sent you an email this morning. What do you need? I said, well, like, I, I just wanted to tell you what we do. And she said, she said, all right, hey, here's the thing. I'm just getting ready to walk into a meeting. You've got five minutes. What do you do? And I said, well, hey. we're one of the largest distributors to CrossFit gyms in the world. Um, I don't know what it is you guys do or why your product is touted as the best. I want to learn more about it. But if you take a look at our brands, you'll find that we have map pricing and we teach people how to do retail. And like a 30-second pause went by, and she said, you're exactly the type of company we've been looking for. There's your elevator pitch. <laughs> yeah, there you go. There you go, because I only had five minutes. That's it. Uh, so, yeah, so three months later, um, we created a, um, an agreement with them to where we were going to take care of all distribution uh, in the functional fitness space as well as to retail stores, and it's been a great relationship. Yeah, I loved when, back when we owned the gym, I would love getting calls on CBD. And, you know, their their salespeople would do a good job of, well, do, are you currently on CBD? Yeah, I am. What do you take? Charlotte's Web. And you just got oh. this silence. And they're like, <laughs> okay, well, it sounds like you're you're squared away. Have a good day. And it was just the best <laughs> feeling yeah. in they're, they they knew their product and they knew the competition. And since you already had the best, there wasn't much that they could say to to convince you. And it was it was awesome to have that recognition with other brands. That was pretty cool. Yeah, and we've 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 had some of those same phone calls. Tuck, you know, we have we get hit up by um, by actual manufacturing plants because they know. They, we, we've developed a name in the space. They know that we have that partnership with the Charlotte's Web, and they've told me flat out, like, hey, we can manufacture this for you. You will make a lot more money than what you're currently making with Charlotte's Web. And my question is always the same. Do you make a better product? Well, no. no. Like, they've got they, – they've cornered the market on that. Like, okay, so can you tell me why I would sell a worse product, even with my name, so I can make more money? And that that in itself lends itself well to a company like Charlotte's Web because we've been with them for so long, and we've never sold them out. We've never gone another direction. My loyalty is to them, and I've told them flat out, like, hey, like the reason we we work with you guys is because you have an amazing product. That could change. 
All right. So um, I think this is going to be my last like supplement question because I've got a few others um, for for you here before we wrap up. But um, if if you were going to create like the Jason Rule stack, and for those non supplement nerds, a stack is kind of the stack of supplements that you take in a, any given day that makes you feel good, that helps you recover, or, and I love asking this question to the owner because he doesn't have to to balance, you know, what can I afford, which three are – you can walk through the <laughs> warehouse and pull off every every single product you make. And I know that you're smart enough not to take every single product you make. You, you'd only choose the ones that, that actually benefit you. Um, but – you're you're also the the perfect age to ask. You're not the the twenty something kid who's trying to get jacked and impress the ladies, and you're also not the sixty five year old guy who's sore from every little workout he does. You're 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 right in the middle of the road, uh, so, you know. So what's what's the Jason Rule stack? I think it's fascinating that you uh, feel that forty five is right in the middle of the road. That's an amazing perspective for sure. <laughs> well, I, that's that's the the former box owner in me because I I trained them all. Yeah. You know, my parents yeah. and 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 Valerie's dad are 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 poster legends. You know, we, they they kicked ass, they learned, they took coaching from younger uh coaches and and it's beautiful to watch. Um and then in the same class I'd have the dumbass college kid trying to injure himself and i'm going look at this 65 year old who's who's doing a better job than you are stop being dumb you know so the the (laughs) 40 year old guy gets it he stretches out he's trying to push himself uh, and get better but he's also not the dumb college kid so yeah right right yeah so uh, my stack is, this is what I take, uh, multivitamin every day. Um, I add vitamin D. I take 5,000. I use total vitamin D a day. Um, uh, magnesium, I like taking that before I go to bed. Anybody that is that exercises, period, is most likely deficient in magnesium. Uh, anybody that deals with headaches, migraines, again, magnesium helps. 500 milligrams to 1,000. Once you get to 1,000, it starts uh, having unpleasant bowel effects. Like magnesium draws moisture into the into the bowels, so you have a tendency to get diarrhea. Is um, there a certain brand or like magnesium chelate or whatever that you prefer? Not really. It, uh, it, I'm not really sensitive to any type of whether it's any type of iron or any type of mineral. So some people do the uh, chelated magnesium because they have issues with digestion. Um, I think just elements are elements. Um, and there's, there's, always, there's always one study that will refute that or another. But for the most part, I just stick with straight magnesium. Okay. Um, let's see. Uh, disrupt. I do that a couple times a day. Um, our circadian rhythms, the way we sleep, the way we wake up, we go to bed, um, our energy, natural ebbs and flows. So at 10 o'clock and then about 1.30 again, I do a scoop of Disrupt. It's just um, mostly for the 120 milligrams of caffeine because it helps kind of keep a, a, a steady focus throughout the day. 
So I don't drag butt in the morning and I don't drag butt in the afternoon, but I also don't get a massive amount of energy from it. Um, and then I just do protein. I do three or four protein scoops a day. Uh, when I when I am training, which I haven't really been over the last three or four months, just allostatic load um, on me with everything with COVID that everything needed to be done, not only with the industry, but in the company. I My day consists of I'll ride the assault bike for three miles, and then I'll row for about a mile. And that's all I've done from an exercise standpoint for the last four to five months. But when I am lifting weights, um, I make sure to add protein before I go to bed, uh, specifically casein. I'll do, and I don't know, test this out. I think you're a fan of casein. Um, I I was talking with Jackie Perez about this, and she's going to test it out also. I don't know why, but if you take casein and you do half milk, half water, it doesn't mix as thick. Otherwise, it's this thick pudding, um, which I really don't care for. But, yeah, for some reason, half water, half milk, it makes us thin. Nice. figure. Yeah. Uh, So casein, casein I found, um, especially from a recovery standpoint, I just, I don't pay the price of lifting weights as much the next day, um, specifically in muscle soreness by doing casein before I go to bed. And um, CBD, still take hemp oil every day. How about the uh, the Restore? Um, I find that if I if I hit three pills of Restore, I kind of have almost a hangover the next day of of sleepiness. Not a hangover in a bad like alcohol way, but in like a I'm dragging ass because I I did too much of it. Little lull. Uh, no, so sleep used to be a big issue for me. Um, you know, I went, uh, when I was in college, I went, got checked out for ADHD cause I had a terrible time. I had a nervous tick of drumming my fingers, had a horrible time trying to focus. And, um, uh, you know, that was early days of ADHD and, you know, that would have been 94 roughly. And thankfully the psychiatrist or psychologist I was working with, um, taught me some practices of, um, journaling, um, like breathing. But one of the best things that I've learned that help that's helped with sleep for over the last five or six years is I read a fiction book when I go to sleep, when I go to bed. Um, my last my last 30, 45 minutes of the day is just fiction. Um, so I like I like the Charlotte's Web sleep gummies. I've been taking those probably for the last oh, a couple months. If I if I have a really stressful day or a lot of stuff going on or if I just have a hard time shutting my mind off I'll take a couple of those um, but for the most part I found that taking taking the time to read a fiction book is one of the best sleep agents that I have found because it allows me to get out of my head and actually live vicariously through someone else and I'm not thinking as much I love it um, tell me about your Tesla um, you used to have the um, what's the Toyota Prius, Prius? Um, mm-hmm. and that's definitely a nerdy car. Uh, so you you've got some experience with electric cars, and now you've got the Tesla, which I hear is amazing. So, and also mm-hmm. the other follow up question to that is, when are you coming back to Hay so I can have a ride? Uh, I, well, I came through there about a year ago. Um, I ended up seeing Josh. I ran across him. A serendipity would have it just uh, up by uh, Eagle Plaza, if I remember right. Uh, went back for Grandma's funeral. Um, 
So yeah, I did. I had a test or a Prius, drove it to 180,000 miles, and um, when Elliot came of age, um, he actually had a, a Jeep. I can't remember what it was called, like that small little boxy thing. I can't remember what what the, what they're called. Liberty, I think, is what they are. Okay. Six cylinder, uh-huh. got horrible gas mileage, and I I told him, I said, I said I'll, I'll give you a choice. You can keep driving the Jeep because he was in charge of he was in charge of his fuel. That's the only thing that we make the kids pay for. And I said you can keep driving the Jeep, or I'll give you the Prius, and I'll go find something else. And here's the thing: like I, I showed him how to calculate his cost per mile. Like everybody's focused on miles per gallon. When I had a Suburban, and that's actually the reason I sold the Suburban and bought the Prius, because I figured out it was cost me about 45 cents per mile to drive that beast. And I looked at it, I was like, oh, shit, what else is out there? And I started studying, like, a Prius, and I was like, what's the cost per mile of that? It came out to, like, 6.5. Like, no-brainer. And I jokingly tell people, like, I, I, I stopped trying to use a vehicle to get laid a long time ago. So <laughs> <laughs> I, was, I was completely comfortable driving a Prius, even though I wasn't completely comfortable driving a Prius. Um, so I told Val, I said, um, I said, if he makes the right choice, we'll just start paying for his fuel. And he did. I think two months later he came and said, okay, I'm tired of buying the gas. I'll drive the Prius. And I said, well, good job. I said, the surprise out of that is you made the right choice. We're going to buy your gas until you get rid of it. And still he has a Prius sophomore in college. Awesome. Um, so when he took the Prius, I drove the Jeep for a little bit, and my dream car had always been a Tesla. Big fan of Musk, uh, which is an amazing book, by the way. I'm guessing you've read it. Yeah, the um, the biography. Yeah, yep. yeah, phenomenal. So my dream car was always a Prius, so I wanted to see, like, okay, what's an electric car like? And thankfully, around that time, gas prices plummeted, and I don't remember what was going on. This has been four or five years and Nissan Leafs started getting dirt cheap. Uh, they've got a range anywhere between 80 to 100 miles, depending on the charge and the weather. So I was like, oh, I'll, I'll test it out. And, like, it's a $38,000 car new, and you could find them at that point for, like, seven grand. You know, not, not a lot for – and it, these were cars that had 20,000 20, miles on them, full warranty. I was like, oh, oh, geez, I'll risk that. So I bought one, drove it for a year. Actually, I drove it for six months, and Val liked it so much – she made me start driving the minivan. <laughs> so I was like, I'm just, so I bought another leaf. So we had, so we had, we had four kids. We had two Nissan Leafs and Elliot's Prius. And our energy bill didn't go up at all. I mean, huh. at all. That's and crazy. we started saving six to $700 a month in gas. Oh yeah. And then I said, Hey, you know what? That pays for a Tesla. It does. <laughs> so I started, I started paying attention and I found, um, found what I wanted. I wanted the all wheel drive. I wanted the upgraded battery. Um, and found one out in Arkansas. Um, a gal had bought it and put 19,000 miles on it, took the majority of the depreciation, um, called an offer, offered a cash price and she took it. And I've been driving it ever since. Um, I've got close to almost 65,000 miles. I've been meaning to ask. I've been meaning to post this up because um, I wonder if how many people. I think it's. I think the generation behind mine, they would buy the dream car and then they would put it in the garage, 
Like I drive my car every day. Sure. Um, in fact, if, if we're going somewhere, it's not because it's a Tesla. It's because like it doesn't cost me anything to drive. Like right now, it's parked outside the warehouse charging. Like I get done, I'll have 280 miles on it for a charge, and I'll be good until next week. Just doesn't cost anything at all. But That's awesome. how many people, if they were to buy their dream car, would drive it every day? Sure. I think it's a lot more than it used to be past generations. Yeah, for sure. That makes sense. Um, how did you get into bees? Cause it's funny that I, like I said, I kind of follow you around and, uh, we have similar interests. And then one day at the gym, I said, I, my bees are coming in today. And you said, really? I have a couple of bee hives. And we went, wow, we both do this thing and we never really even talked about it. So what got you into bees? So I got into bees, um, um, uh, Jared, uh, my brother-in-law, um, he got into it years ago and always had, um, always had great honey. He would always share it, would never sell it. And he was, he, he was a good steward of nature. And so he would just talk to me about them and, and his passion for it and his curiosity, um, Really, really rubbed off. Um, so I got a couple hives after he passed away, and uh, I've been doing it ever since. And still, still to this day, I've never sold one. I've, I'll give them away, um, but uh, people are like, oh, hey, can I buy some of this from you? No, I, there's there's enough things on in the world that we can buy. There ought to be a few things that we can't buy, and that way, when we actually give it, its true value is there. So that's why I don't sell my honey, but why I raise bees. That's awesome. It's something, it's something I can give that's a material thing that, you know, I, I hope people enjoy. I hope people, when they use it, they think of that thought. And it's, it's amazing to watch it happen because it's inexplainable. You can't, how these little things create that that nectar is is incredible i don't know it's yeah you can only you can only experience it as a beekeeper it's it's pretty dang cool yeah it's it's humbling because they've been doing it for eons um and each each species of bee inside of that hive has its job and it does its job really well if not I mean, here's the thing, like Einstein said it, like if bees go, humans leave five years after. Um, I don't want to be here all day. We could make this last all day, but um, one more question, then we got some rapid fire and we'll wrap it up. But uh, we're talking about, you got four kids. Um, We didn't get into Lakin and his surgery and all that, but... uh, we did talk about Elliot and his back and man, just I knowing you and Val and being awesome parents, um, you're a good ways ahead of me in the dad space. Uh, what kind of advice can you offer a, a young dad with younger kids than yours, uh, in managing teenagers and, trying to be a good dad. Cause I look up to you quite a bit in that area. Uh, that's kind of you to say, I appreciate it. Um, 
So that, that's been a journey that I've tried to, to get better at. Um, that's actually one of the things that I journal about every morning. Um, one of the, just like anything else, whether it's business, um, Taekwondo, CrossFit, study, uh, read. Uh, there's a really good book called, uh, there's actually two books that the same author wrote. Um, one is called Boys Adrift. The other is Girls on the Edge. And it talks about the different struggles that, that each gender has. And right now it's, it's real, it's real pronounced. I don't think it's as common as what is currently out there to where, um, people having gender neutral mindsets. There is a difference between boys and girls. And we do, we do our kids a disservice. We all have the obligation to raise our kids the way that we see fit. And so if somebody's listening to this, that they're offended, like, like that's, this is my opinion, raise your kids the way that you see fit. You have that obligation, just like I have the obligation to raise them as I see fit. Uh, but I also feel I have the obligation to learn as much as I can so I can do a better job. And boys on the edge, or I'm sorry, girls on the edge and boys adrift are great because they really set out the, the tempo of what has taken place over you know, beyond helicopter parents, beyond um, gender neutrality of, you know, the, but identifying, hey, there are some boys that, that need this type of nurturing. There are some girls that need this type of nurturing. And learning some of the different things that can help give these human beings a better foundation for their life. Um, and being, you know, I'm just, I'm, I'm really candid. I'm very honest with my kids. I have a, I have a pack that I'll never lie to them, which means that when they ask me a question, it may not make them feel great. But my job isn't to make them feel great. My job is to prepare, prepare them to be human beings, to be kind, be, to be getting. And I heard one time, like, kids are born really selfish. Our job as parents is to, to make it so they're not selfish. I'd like to add uh, uh, Wild at Heart is a good book, too. Uh, I've got like so one, one chapter left and it's a, it's amazing. So good. Um, all right. Quick, rapid fire questions, quick draw. Uh, your answers don't have to be necessarily quick, but, uh, what's one relatively inexpensive experience you think at least everyone should try at least once? Bungee jumping. Not skydiving? Never done it. Yeah, me neither. And I haven't done either <laughs> one, but okay. Um, I, you said a bunch of different books. I've taken some notes on books. Are there any specific books you've read multiple times or you find um, recommending often? Uh, yeah, uh, Tribes, of course. Uh, Jordan Peterson's uh, 12, I think it's 12 Rules of Life. Um, Principles. I uh, can't remember the author's name of that. Uh, Jordan Peterson, I think, is is amazing. Um, and the other four that I would add to that that I've read multiple times is uh, Ron Chernow books, um, Franklin, Washington, Hamilton, and Jefferson. Um, I started studying those when all of the stuff with politics started getting blown up about 10, 12 years ago. Everybody was talking about what did the founding fathers want here's what they wanted the truth is like these guys really didn't study history they're just touting 
what what their cognitive bias is because they think that other people would have agreed with them. So I wanted to go read those books, kind of like back in college, like with psychology, with Tony Robbins. Um, I would go read the books that he would tout that he read when he was young. So I went and studied those founding fathers to learn, like, what happened? Why, why is America, why was America founded? Um, where, did, where did they come from? What was their background? How did this experiment even take place? Uh, so really anything by Ron Chernow, um, or Walter Isaacson, I love. Awesome. Um, you mentioned journaling in the morning. Do you have any other specific morning rituals that you do every day? Coffee. Uh, I, we go, uh, I go out on the back deck, grab my journal, um, have a cup of coffee, usually by myself. I don't touch my phone until about 8.30. Um, and in the morning, I... Uh, I'll ride the assault bike for three miles and I'll row for a mile and that's my morning routine. And then I stretch. What about evening before bed? You mentioned reading the fiction book, anything else, uh, other than brushing your teeth, the normal stuff, but anything else before you go to bed? Yep. I set my clothes out. Um, I set my clothes out for the next day right beside my bed. So I don't have to decide on anything. Do you have a, um, you know, Steve Jobs was known to have a, a self-imposed uniform, basically same thing every day. Mm-hmm. Do you have one of those? No, because like my my drawer is filled with uh, driven shirts mm-hmm. and shirts that have been given to me from CrossFit gyms. That's really the only clothing I have at this point. Um, actually, I, right now I'm wearing a pair of game shorts that Tyler Chamness or Tyler Christophe gave me from the CrossFit games. Like, um, the, the clothes I wear are things that people have given to me. Um, so no, I just, I, 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 I intentionally, I intentionally avoid decisions. And that's, that was Steve's, uh, premise of, and, and I believe that it's right of, you know, we have a fuel gauge of, of ability and aptitude and that deplenishes as we, increase our decisions. So I try to make it to where I don't have to decide anything before about eight thirty or nine o'clock in the morning, including what to wear or what to eat. Cool. What's uh, one to two things that people could do in the next week or so that would, that they could change or that they could do that would have a drastic impact on their lives. Increase water intake. Drink more water just habitually. Um, and move. Just exercise. I, like I think it. that I think I think exercise fixes a lot of things. For sure. I got one more question before we go here. Is there anything else that you wanted to add? Uh, thanks so much for your time. This has been amazing. Uh, no, man. I love you guys. I'm I'm so grateful that that the universe put us there and you, uh, Jill and, and Josh there to where we could learn. I mean, what, I mean, you, you guys, I've said it over and over again on so many podcasts, like Southland was, was an amazing fertile ground to learn like, what is, what is CrossFit? What is a community? Um, without getting bought into the hype. So I'm, I'm beyond grateful for you guys. 
I appreciate that. With that, uh, before we go here, what would you like for your personal legacy to be when you're dead and gone? What do you want people to say about you? Hmm. That's, um, that's one you can't skip past. I, you gotta, that's the last thing we're wrapping up gotta, here. Um, that I, that I gave them something and what, what that, what that fill in the blank is. I, I don't know what it is. Um, I think, I think that we all have our ability to leave a mark on someone, whether it's through, something physical or knowledge or just sharing an experience and an emotion. I think if I were, if I were going to be remembered for something is that I gave them something. That's awesome. Um, driven nutrition.net. Is that right? Yep. Or.com either one. Okay. Where else can people find you on Instagram? Anything like that? Yeah, Jason underscore underscore rule. Um, I'm, I'm out on Facebook. I mean, all it is is pictures of my my family and my dog. So if anybody uh, is interested in that, or um, you know, either of the brands, Driven Nutrition and Tight Nutrition. Very good. Thanks again, man. All right, Tucker. Thank you so much for having me on. I enjoyed it.